from KCRW. I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When Christopher Borgley got the Norwegian Film Institute to provide funding for his debut feature, Sick of Myself, the Oslo-born filmmaker failed to mention that he had secretly moved to L.A. That was definitely against the rules. I kept having to come up with excuses that I was somewhere abroad and I was in a different place each time and I had to do it over Zoom. And each time I had to come up with like a new excuse, you know, because I couldn't reveal that I'd moved out of the country. Borgley went on to make his first feature film in Norway in Norwegian, so no harm, no foul. The writer-director joins us to talk about his new English-language movie, Dream Scenario, which stars Nicolas Cage, though the original plan was Adam Sandler. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my fellow in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So quite a lot of news this week. Let's start with Warner's. Warner's, once again, has dropped a completed movie, and a totally completed movie this time. You did it with Batgirl. It did it with some Scooby-Doo movie. It's doing it now with this Roadrunner Coyote movie. This is the kind of thing that makes creatives crazy. Initially, they were like, we're just going to put it in a dark room, lock the door, and no one will ever see it. But now they've turned around because of the blowback and said, okay, we're going to allow other studios to buy this if they want to from us, which is kind of funny because those characters are so identified with Warners. But, you know, it's maybe considered better to try to give it a sale and let people see it and not be that much of the bad guys. However, I'm pretty skeptical about them finding a buyer. It's certainly an uphill battle because this is a $70 million movie and it's in that gray zone where, you know, Warners had stopped making movies at that price for the streaming service, which is where this was originally greenlit to go. They then pivoted and said, oh, we're going to release this in theaters. And then they had second thoughts about that and felt it was not theatrical enough. The filmmakers are out there saying, well, this movie tested great. And they've got their filmmaker friends to see it, like Lord and Miller. And they're tweeting about how great this movie is. You know, I've heard from sources at Warner's that it's not exactly the greatest movie in the world. Keep in mind, it was greenlit for streaming, not for theatrical. And the bottom line here is they've got to find a buyer now that's willing to make Warners at least somewhat whole on this and pay them enough money where it's worth having this movie out there that they don't believe is good, regardless of whether it is or not. They did not believe in this movie. And it's going to be on another streaming service, likely. That's a brand damage problem. Where if, you know, you've got a new head of Warner Animation, Bill Damaschke, who has come in here with his own strategy for what Looney Tunes should be. And from everything I've reported on this, he was a little afraid of putting this movie out because it's not what they want their Looney Tunes strategy to be. And to have this on another service out there, potentially Netflix, where it's going to get a huge audience, not great for Warner. So that somebody's got to write them a big enough check to make it worthwhile. Well, that's the issue. $70 million in this day and age, I think, is too much for a movie like that. You know, it plays young. It may be great and adults will go with the kids, but it's a lot of money for a movie of this nature. So we'll see if they find a buyer, but we both are skeptical. Uh, Yeah, a little bit, but I still think they should have released it. I think Warner's made a mistake here. They should have anticipated that after the Batgirl debacle, Doing this to another filmmaker, it was just going to stir up everyone around town. And that's what happened. They started getting threats from other filmmakers canceling meetings. And, you know, they they were forced into reversing course here. And I think that was pretty predictable. I know they're in a 
terrible financial situation and they can't just release a movie to have a better relationship with John Cena, even though they are in business with him on a number of different things. But I just think that when you're sending that message to creatives that we can cancel your movie if it doesn't reach a certain threshold of playability, that's a long-term problem. Yeah, and of course, factor in the cost of actually, if you're going to do it theatrically, the marketing cost is going to be huge. So yeah, they would have to gross a lot of money, and this is a problem. It'll probably hopefully stop when they burn through the pipeline of whatever was green-lighted before they even got there. But uh, we'll see whether this movie finds a home. I'm going to turn to Warner Music, which is not a part of Warner Bros. Discovery. They have announced that they're going to do an AI movie with Edith Piaf, who's long been in heaven, (laughs) uh, the great French singer. And they're going to do this with AI to make a voice that sounds like Edith Piaf to narrate the events of her life that are going to be covered in this film, which is animated, I should say. Now, AI, as we both know, is a sticking point in the deal that the screen actors just made. There is people in the guild who vocally think that they may not be getting enough protection and they're not completely sure what they get. And now to turn around at this moment, <laughs> announce that you're going to generate Edith Piaf's voice, that is timing that is likely to stir the pot, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of caveats here. First of all, this is being done in partnership with the Piaf estate. So it's not like this is against yes, her family's very will. important Presumably, point. Yes. they are making money off of this and it's all above board. The timing is not great because the entire SAG membership is now being asked to vote to ratify this deal that was negotiated. And there have been some vocal critics, Justine Bateman, one of them, and others who have essentially said that SAG has left the door open on AI for the studios to run all over these actors and to essentially replace them. Now, SAG pushes back on that heavily. And from the very beginning, SAG-AFTRA has said they are not trying to shut down all AI. They wanted to allow AI and technological progress to continue, but they wanted their members to require consent, to get paid, and to have a voice in how their images are used going forward. And SAG says this deal does accomplish this, but there are still some big critics out there who are saying that it's really opening the door here for the studios. Yeah, I mean, unlike the Writers Guild, which had almost 100% endorsement for the deal that they finally made with the studios, I'm not sure SAG-AFTRA gets to that number. The uh, initial approval by the board wasn't 100%. So it's a question of how many people will not vote for the thing. That's true. But the board approval was in the 80s. And I think push comes to shove, more than 50% of the membership is going to back this. And that's all they need. Yes, after the length of time of people were out of work, I don't know how many people have that fight left in them at this point. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Norwegian filmmaker Christopher Borgley has made two features so far, both dark comedies exploring the human craving for attention and the negative effects of capitalism. His debut film, Sick of Myself, follows a young woman so desperate to be noticed that she ingests a drug that had been taken off the market because it turned out to cause severe skin diseases. Her compulsion escalates from there, and yes, it is pretty nasty to look at. Dream Scenario is Borgley's first English-language movie, produced by midsummer filmmaker Ari Aster and backed by A24. 
It stars Nicolas Cage as college professor Paul Matthews, an average nerdy guy whose life is transformed when he mysteriously starts to appear in people's dreams and gains sudden viral fame. You've been on my mind recently. Because yeah. you keep popping up in my dreams. You don't do anything, you're just there. So, this specific person, the remarkable nobody, I'm also gonna have that experience. Do you have a picture? I don't know why it is that people in your part of the world speak such amazing English, and most people here barely can speak a second language, a lot of people in this country. I asked a young Finnish girl why her English was so perfect, and she said Netflix. I don't know if you had to just learn it in school the old-fashioned way. Yeah, there was no Netflix for me growing up, but there was Seinfeld and Simpsons, and uh, those things really uh, made an impact. Uh, it's also like you're forced in school from a very young age to learn English. So a little bit of force goes a long way. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the end, it pays off, I guess, all the suffering. So you started writing, I read, crime movies when you were in your late teens in your parents' basement. <laughs> and you said, of course, they all sucked. But I have to think that was the beginning of this. I then read that you were working in a video store. Exactly. And I thought, this is like the Quentin Tarantino of Norway. <laughs> because as we famously know, that's what he did. Exactly. I mean, the, the comparison, I think, stops there, that we both worked at a video store. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was formative years for me, uh, watching and, and becoming obsessed with movies which led me to think that I wanted to have a part of it in some way. And I was trying to write scripts at an early age. And um, yes, they did suck. They're really embarrassing. <laughs> and it took me many, many years of making short films and sort of teaching myself how to become a director and a writer. And uh, now we're here. Yeah, I have some notes that say... <laughs> There were skateboard clips that led to music videos, that led to commercials, that led to the short films. I'm particularly interested in the things about directing ads, because I saw that you said you were sort of horrified by that culture of advertising, and it influenced your film that you do not consider your first film, Drib, which is a feature-length mockumentary, I guess, right? You considered that an experiment rather than a feature debut. Yeah, I mostly consider it that way because I was disappointed in it. So I'm like sort of putting one of my children in the forest and leaving them and denying them. But in my 20s, uh, you know, it was really hard to get a budget for anything. And um, it was really hard just making a living for myself as a, an unknown writer, director. And one of the ways to get something funded was either music videos or ads and uh, they become a, a little bit of a necessary evil for me as a means to work in like a real film production. But yeah, the culture in advertisement was something that I think being the son of a social anthropologist was absorbed and kept ruminating in my head and I, I couldn't let go of it. And it started sort of coming out in movies where it felt natural and there's a part of that time in my life that has influenced even parts of dream scenario. What about that culture was so horrifying to you? I think it's just the um, delusion of what we are doing in that space. We're lying to ourselves that we're making art. It's sort of like when 
a dog chases a ball, it's using some of its like healthy instincts for this sort of fake version of hunting. And that we have like a natural sort of interest and curiosity for being creative and making art. And and we're doing this sort of chasing the ball version of it. And on the way, we're sort of making the field of art and, and goodwill and good intentions corrupt. It's like a place that has been sort of a little bit scary to me because it it could if we leave everything to these market incentives i'm just fearful that we're not going to have anything sacred left yes it's uh, taking art for the purposes of commerce that i yeah. think is the uncomfortable thing but you were making a living doing that right yeah i made a, enough of a living to sit and write my scripts in between and i had to like sort of come up for air and, and do commercials once in a while just to be able to afford rent. But the Norwegian Film Institute has a writing grant that funded sort of my humble little life uh, when I moved to LA. So I could spend time writing sick of myself and not having to do ads for a while. And uh, ever since that, I've, I haven't really worked in advertising because my main incentive was always just to make uh, living. How did the Norwegian Film Institute feel about you being in LA doing this when you were not in Norway? Wow, that's actually very interesting because it's against the rules. I wondered and, about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, it was a, sort of a problem because there's a consultant who reads the drafts of the script. And those meetings, of course, were supposed to take place in Oslo at the Film Institute. Uh, so I kept having to come up with excuses uh, that I was somewhere abroad and I was in a different place each time and I had to do it over the phone or over Zoom. And each time I had to come up with like a new excuse and I was always <laughs> traveling, I, you know, because I couldn't reveal that I'd moved out of the country. All right. So that become like a side hustle for me to come up with these scenarios of why I wasn't in Norway. Did you have to give yourself a different background on Zoom every time? I can just exactly. imagine. <laughs> there was one time, I'm not joking, but I pretended I was in France and I went to a French restaurant here in <laughs> uh, LA and, uh, you know, kind of tricked her. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of the list like I had COVID, my brother's cat died and I had to go be with him or whatever. The... <laughs> this, this was pre-COVID, so I didn't have that excuse. You didn't even yet. have COVID. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you just had to fake it. Did you make drib when you were living here in LA or somewhere um, else? It was all written and conceived of in Norway. And um, it was funded from this like strange corner of the Film Institute that was dedicated to sort of unusual and modern ways of making a movie. And I told them that I wanted to make a reenactment of a real story. And uh, the real story, I said, took place in LA. So I had to go there to shoot it. <laughs> okay. And they sort of bought the argument. And yet again, like you're not supposed to take the Norwegian Film Institute's money and, and place them in different countries like that. So yet again, I was breaking the rules, but the rationale being like, if you're going to try to reenact a real story, it makes sense to go to the place that it originally happened. It wasn't until I was done with the movie that I revealed to them that the story actually never happened. It was completely fabricated. 
I'm starting to wonder if we have an extradition agreement with Norway. <laughs> they may be dragging yeah. you back to account for yourself with that. And I gather you moved to LA for a reason that I certainly understand because of the seasonal affective disorder in Norway, because it's I mean, one thing we do have here is very bright sun. Exactly. And of course, it's a place for a filmmaker. So, yeah. My strongest incentive was to get rid of my seasonal depression. And then the the fact that it's the movie capital was sort of a cherry on top. And then you get to this film, Sick of Myself, which was also made through European funding systems, I think. But you were, again, here in L.A. Yeah. And I was writing it here and I was waiting for it to be fully funded, which took time because... The Norwegian Film Institute contributed what was half of the production budget, and we had to apply for grants across Europe, but it was first funded by the Film Institute in March 2020, which is exactly when the pandemic was official. And it took a full year for the rest of the movie to be funded because every film institute sort of stopped working and put everything on hold until we knew whether it was going to be possible to make a movie again. So I was waiting for a while. And in that meantime, I was setting up dream scenario. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you managed to get any kind of traction in Hollywood or even wanted to when you were still here, but working on theoretically a Norwegian project. Yeah. I've been very uh, bad at networking. I've been very reluctant to participating in that idea. I've been uh, living what I consider to be off Hollywood. So I was here for years writing Norwegian scripts. And then I had one meeting, which was with uh, Lars Knudsen, a Danish producer, who after that meeting started a company with Ari Aster called Square Peg. And I thought, you know, once I have an American script, he's the one I want to send it to. And when Dream Scenario was in its early stages, the first draft, I sent it to him and him and Ari came on board to produce the movie. And then suddenly in 2021, both projects were fully funded and ready to go. And I uh, made Sick of Myself first. And um, as soon as that was done, you know, I went to the premiere in Cannes and went straight back to L.A. and started working on Dream Scenario. So these two movies were made very much back to back. Coming up after the break, Christopher Borgley talks about why working with A24 was so artist friendly that it reminded him of his experience with the European funding system. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. In preparing for our interview with Oslo-born filmmaker Christopher Borgley, we learned that in Norway there's a cultural phenomenon known as the Law of Janta, or Jantaloven. It's not an actual statute, but rather a code of social conduct that values collective well-being over individuality and personal success. The Law of Janta, or rather the reaction to it, is a recurring theme in Borgley's work. His films follow characters who yearn for recognition, but find that the price of getting it can be very high. 
Borgli's debut film, Sick of Myself, was financed with European support, but his latest venture, the A24 comedy Dream Scenario, marks his first foray into the American film system. What I'm getting from this whole story of how you came to be in a position to direct these films is the European system, which is so different from the U.S. system. And I imagine that you would regard the U.S. system with an extremely wary eye because, you know, in Europe, you're funded to create not a product, but, a, you know, a movie. And here, sometimes the movies seem to be more like products. Exactly. I mean, we have a support system in Europe with film institutes and art grants that makes it possible to create a movie without the burden of having it make its money back. And it relieves some pressures off of the art itself. Of course, this was on my mind coming to the U.S. and making a movie here because the U.S. doesn't have that system. It only has the business model. And I was really lucky to work with A24 because they believe in their filmmakers and they never asked me to change the art to optimize it for a market. In that sense, it felt actually very similar making a movie in Europe and in the US because they protected the creative in that way. And I could uh, keep my artistic integrity. And I think that's the only way that I can make anything. And if the system won't allow it, I would have to move somewhere else. Yes. But still being here, I think, influenced the character, certainly in, in Sick of Myself. One of the themes of Sick of Myself is this desperate desire to be paid attention to, to be noticed, and maybe even to be famous, which is another thing that you play with in Dream Scenario. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like to some degree that was informed by being here. Yeah, I mean, in Norway, it's actually illegal to be famous. Um, so <laughs> just that incentive is foreign and exotic in Norway. <laughs> the character was influenced in a way where those traits seemed um, normal out here. Uh, and they would be unusual, more unusual in Norway. And that made for a more kind of a interesting place to put such a character. You can't mean that it's literally illegal to be famous in Norway. You mean frowned upon or uncool? Um, no, it's it's written into the law of Norway. Yeah. How can that be a thing? <laughs> I'm not sure. I never really looked it up. Okay. We're going to look it up ourselves and try to figure okay. that one out. <laughs> you had mentioned that you met with Lars Knudsen. How was that arranged? I don't know if you had an agent here or you were even looking for one. I No, I didn't have an agent. It was... Um, my failed first project, Dreb, screened at uh, South by Southwest. And there was a producer at that screening who said, come to our offices in L.A. And um, it was the only person who reached out to me. <laughs> and I went to that office and they happened to be working with Lars on a project and they just said, hey, you guys should have dinner together. You're both Scandinavian. Maybe you have something to talk about. And uh, and so we did. And, and that's how the connection was made. And it was the least amount of uh, networking <laughs> with the biggest amount of impact uh, ever in my life. And probably other people's as well. Yeah. So you write, you direct and edit. You went through audience testing for this film? We actually did. We did two screenings with audience. And it was mostly 
for the studio to figure out how to market the movie because it is a sort of undefinable genre uh, or blend of genres. And I think they just needed to figure out what the people were responding to and, and how to sort of label this. And for me, I sat through those screenings. And uh, one thing that's really helpful is for the comedy that you can really test if people are laughing or not and if they're laughing at the right spots. And it just actually made me more confident in, in the movie um, because people were laughing uncontrollably at those screenings. So um, I, I, it just made me feel uh, better about it. I'll bet. That was very encouraging. Nicholas Cage said in a recent interview with the New York Times that there may have been some other leads in mind for this. It sort of now it feels like how could that be? But were there others? At a brief period, we were discussing this project with Adam Sandler, and then the timing just didn't work out. And the next person we asked uh, was Nicolas Cage, who in retrospect is the most suited person to play this part, not only for his acting talent, but also because he has experienced a lot of the things that the the character has experienced in the movie, which is uh, having your sort of persona outgrow yourself as a person. He's uh, been, you know, memefied and turned into this mythical icon in the culture, fully outside of his own control. And uh, that's something that happens with the character. And I think he found sort of a personal angle to play this uh, due to his personal experience. Uh, yeah, he's had the up and the down and the back up again. <laughs> he's, he's really been through the fame experience. I think the whole concept, I mean, you said fame is illegal, but I, I think for you personally, there's something horrifying about fame. Um, I think it's just, um, it can be really horrifying to live in too many people's heads <laughs> that it can, of course, come with huge consequences. And I think it was Bill Murray that said, do you want to be famous or do you just want to be rich? Why don't you try being rich first and just see if that solves all your problems? Because <laughs> I think he also has felt all the negative impact of fame. And I think it feels intuitive to want massive amounts of attention and that if our self-worth comes through the eyes of others, then why not have everyone look at us? But I think uh, it quickly becomes a nightmare. I mean, my films uh, both take place in a, a privileged space. Uh, in Norway, it's the welfare system. And in this movie, it's sort of the upper middle class. And when you meet these characters at the beginning of the stories, they live inside of sort of comfortable lives, but they are making themselves miserable by focusing on sort of unattainable goals or the sort of negative space of their lives, the things that they don't have. To me, this movie could work as a sort of a reminder mm -hmm. of uh, stop and smell the roses, you know, focus on the things that's in front of you and maybe stop worrying too much about sort of external validation. That's sort of the mindful philosophy that I am trying to uh, apply to my own life. And, and I think this movie sort of uh, shows you how terrible it can go if you get too sort of hung up on that negative space of, of your life. 
Yes, I, I always remember I had a conversation with a producer of very, very big action movies, including Nick Cage action movies. And he said to me that he always feels bad when the lead actors get really famous because it's not good. Yeah. It's kind of a paradox. He's making them famous, but feeling very bad about it at the same time. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you also sort of take a shot at consumerism, and maybe that's because of the hangover from those ad-making days. Exactly. You know, I've been inside of the sausage factory and um, it's comedic to me, the sort of tone and language and energy that exists in those types of meetings. And it felt very natural that once a phenomenon is sort of big enough and a central part of the public conversation, that marketing and advertising culture comes in to try to piggyback off of it which is a very natural element of the progress in the film for him to have like a brush with advertisement. Yes, right. <laughs> and it quickly turns quite horrifying. Christopher Borgley is the writer and director of Dream Scenario, the films in theaters now. Thank you very much for making time for us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's show with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. <laughs>